Luke chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 28. We'll read through the end of the chapter. We may press a little further than that in our message, but we will at least get that far. Luke chapter 19, beginning verse 28 through 48. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. God's Word says, When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the mountain opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone says, or if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So as, so the, I'm really messing up this morning. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praising, praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Well, we have been traveling with Jesus. We've just left Jericho and we are moving into Jerusalem. And today, of course, is that day that we often describe as the triumphal entry, uh, which is uh, really a misnomer, I believe, especially when we look at the text and the response of Jesus to this event. Certainly he did enter Jerusalem, that part of it, uh, I don't doubt. It's the triumphal part um, because we find that the, this entry isn't really the entry that is going to be the triumphal one. That one is still to come. Uh, this one is an entry where, if anything, it was a failure because in terms of human terms, 
uh, as far as the disciples were concerned, it did not accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. It was not making him king. It did not establish his kingdom on earth, which is what they were looking for. And so we're going to be looking at not only the entry itself, the event, and I think most of us are familiar with the event, but we want to look also particularly at Jesus' response, first of all, to Jerusalem as a whole, and then specifically to her cultic practice, and that is her work in and around the temple sacrificial system. And we're going to be examining that at length today, trying to bring forward the themes of Luke uh, that we have found consistently throughout and now being uh, played out by Christ uh, before the multitudes. And really there is a, a aspect of what we are going to see now where outside of Gethsemane, uh, most all of Jesus' life from here on is going to be uh, surrounded by a multitude of people. And so we'll find very little time alone, uh, very little time with just his disciples, as I said, outside of Gethsemane. And even that was really a fairly brief time considering all that was surrounding this week. This is the beginning of what we describe as the Passion Week. Uh, that is the week in which Christ ministered in Jerusalem and then, of course, uh, died on the cross and was resurrected. And so we're entering that week. And I know we've just come out of a uh, season for this, which would have been around Passover. Uh, but we, are gonna, we did study some of that previously, of Christ's resurrection. But we want to go through it methodically as Luke does. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for the opportunity now to look into your word. And we recognize that as a great privilege. And again... Like other privileges you've given to us, it comes with a responsibility. So this morning we want to recognize that we want you to have the preeminence here. Uh, That the words spoken need to be by your Spirit and according to your word of truth. You might guard this time from any error, from opinion. You might guard it from the philosophies of this world or of this man. And that uh, it might be your truth for us today. And Lord, we know that you alone have the power, knowledge, the authority to speak to each one here this morning, regardless of our uh, condition or what is on our hearts. Uh, You can minister to each one of us, unlike any man can, uh, through your word today. And we pray that uh, you might do so, again, not to our glory, to yours. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, our themes have really focused on limiting the field of who are truly the disciples of Jesus Christ. And Christ Jesus himself has been doing that as we've been seeing, we have seen over the weeks, that while multitudes gather to see the great things that Christ did of, of healing the, the lame and the blind and the, the ill, of uh, casting out demons, and, and we see all that activity of, of producing food and, and drink and things along that line, we notice that the multitudes, while they gather for those big events, when it comes down to the teaching of Christ, have great difficulty understanding it. Uh, even to the point of sometimes walking away saying, this is just too hard. Granted, there's these great acts, but what he's teaching is difficult for us to want to uh, acknowledge or let alone obey uh, because 
they set their mind on earthly things. And we're going to find the same condition here. Because the multitudes were setting their minds and their hearts on the physical healing, they then associated Christ's teaching with physical truth. And Christ was very bold in saying, you know, what I'm teaching you is, is spiritual. And so when he tells them that if you do not eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me, they said they, he, wants me, he, he wants us to become cannibals. And they didn't grasp the truth that he wants uh, to communicate to them on a spiritual level. That spiritually they must partake of his sacrifice to have a right relationship with God. And so whether it be through the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ, whether it be through his direct statement saying, you cannot be to my, my disciple if you're not willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, you cannot be my disciple if you love mother, brother, sister, wife, uh, whatever relationship more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And he has all of these narrowing and limiting statements uh, that we saw really culminated in the parable of the Minas. And uh, specifically, even before that, we looked at the uh, uh, idea that uh, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The whole concept that while there might be multitudes gathered around Jesus, there are really only a very small handful who are true believers in Jesus Christ. And still to this day, that is our expectation. While there's a great multitude of people calling themselves Christians, this is not God's perspective, but men's. And their profession must be uh, proven by their works, James tells us. That faith without works is dead and worthless. It's vain. And, and before God, it's pointless. It does nothing to... Uh, secure for us that place in heaven. So Christ has, even going back to the parable of the sower and the seeds, and the soils, i get those all out, uh, has repeatedly told us that there's only this small group, this small number, who are going to be truly productive members of the family of God. That the multitude, the majority, have casual interest at best, have professed interest, but if they are not going about the work that Christ has has, uh, designated here and will continue to designate for his command, for his believers, you cannot call yourself his disciple. In In that context now, we come in to Christ's arrival in Jerusalem and we find exactly the same condition in the hearts and minds of men. The disciples were thinking earthly. The multitudes are thinking earthly. And Christ is going to communicate his sadness, his dismay over their condition. That they cannot bring themselves to conceive of what is actually happening this day. That the Savior, the Deliverer, the Messiah is coming. Not just the King. They all want him as King according to their definition of king, but they didn't want what he was longing to give them. Let's look at the event, first of all, here in chapter 19 of Luke. He is traveling up from Jericho and moving up, and of course, as you travel from the east to the west, you will crest the hill where we'll find these two little bergs of Bethphage and Bethany, 
this is all part of the Mount Olivet, which sits to the east of Jerusalem. There is a, a pretty significant, deep uh, valley, if you'll call it that. It's more of a ravine between the Olivet and the Temple Mount and where Jerusalem would sit. And so as he crests up over that ridge, he'll come to these two communities, and uh, we know that there are some individuals there that he has some close contact with. He's going to be coming back to Bethany each evening, and uh, he's getting ready. He knows what he's there to do. This is the time that he has been has set aside, and so he sends his disciples to go get a colt, one that has never been ridden on, very important. This whole description is setting the course for the fulfillment of prophecy that this is how a king of Israel is supposed to enter Jerusalem. And this is not lost on the disciples what's going on here. They understand that this is the description of of this ultimate king of Jerusalem, king of Israel. And so he sends them in, says you're going to enter into a village opposite you. Uh, and this would uh, possibly be uh, south of Jerusalem. Uh, there were the, the, there's a designated area called the City of David, and you think, well, that is Jerusalem. It's a part of Jerusalem. And then even farther south, you have some other villages. Uh, there, it may be opposite on the hillside there. And so he, he sends them off and says, you'll find this situation. You'll find a colt uh, tied. No one's ever sat upon it. You'll loosen and bring it here. Uh, Christ anticipates that that's not a normal course of activity. Someone might think that it's being stolen. He says, uh, so to prevent that idea, I'm going to make sure that someone sees you do it. And they're going to say, what are you doing? And you're to tell them a simple statement. Because the Lord has need of it. No description of who that person is, uh, the evidence is that this individual will be satisfied by that statement, and indeed we find it to be just so. The colt is there, tied just as is described. They loose it just as they are commanded. And by the way, that command is kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? You're supposed to just walk in and take something. Now, we have been taught all our life that that's wrong. You don't just walk up and take stuff that's not yours. Um, but Christ has a need, and that colt has been prepared for that need. Uh, and so the, the evidence is that they would, I want you to go take something that's not yours and you're going to be caught doing it. Isn't that great to know? You know, here's, here's one of your commands by God. I want you to go and take that. You're going to be caught while you're taking that colt. And here's what you say. And for most of us, we would look at Christ and scratch our heads and say, um, you know, that's kind of illegal. We would scratch our heads and say, you know, you want me to believe that just saying the Lord has need of him is sufficient to satisfy someone when I'm stealing their colt? You see, we would have all those excuses, wouldn't we, for Jesus? We would have every reason in the world, we'd have every legal reason, every logical reason to say, Christ, I'm not going to do that. You don't know what people are like. They're very possessive of their colts. The disciples obey. And this is the evidence of true discipleship, is a willingness to obey even when it seems to fall in the face of reason, in the face of what the world says is 
normal or what should be done, we obey. And yes, people have gone to jail for obeying God. And that perhaps is one of the things that is most frightening about Christianity in America is that we can obey God and not have that risk, not have that proof that are you going to obey God or the government? We don't have that weight on us yet, not, at least not extensively. Um, maybe if we go out of our way, we could try to force that issue. But in many parts of our world today, there is still that decision. Do I obey my government or do I obey God? And boy, it's very easy in those environments to sort out who are true believers of Jesus Christ and who are not. But in our society, in our culture, in our nation, it makes it very difficult. And so sometimes I think it's necessary for us to maybe obey God a little more radically simply because of the ease at which it is to obey God superficially here in our country. So they're called upon. They obey. And we need to applaud that kind of obedience. They speak the very words that Christ tells them to speak and apparently had no problems. I want to share with you that uh, that doesn't mean that this person just says, okay, go ahead and take my colt. The Lord has need of him. Now, if I were the owner of the colt, you know where I would be. I want to see this guy. The likelihood, in my mind, the likelihood is the guy followed him. He was going to get his colt back before the end of the day. The Lord has need of him. And what a testimony of this man. That's all he knew. That's all he was told. Here's one of my resources, one of my possessions. Someone comes along and says, God needs it. The Lord needs it. And I go, okay. And I want to share with you, just as it would be our place to argue with Christ about going and doing such an act, similarly, we would not tolerate such an act to allow someone to just come and say, the Lord needs it. Okay, use it. Rather, we say, well, no, you need to ask my permission, and you need to, and I'm not sure I want it used for that, and you got to make sure that uh, everyone knows where it came from and who supplied it. I want my name on the program, um, or I want, you know, I'm, put it underneath there. Um, just having the Lord had need of it is not really sufficient. So on both sides, we have this testimony of what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. That all of our resources are His, are at His disposal because we recognize His prior ownership. That we are simply the managers. And secondly, we'll obey without delay, without excuse, without argument. We'll obey. It's brought to Jesus. The disciples again throw their clothes on the colt, set Jesus on him, and everything is going according to plan, their plans. So far, Jesus' plan and the disciples' plan are right close together. Everything's cool so far. And aren't we all fine with that when our plan and God's plan are the same? As long as God's plan is in accordance with mine, I'm okay with it. Off they go into the city. Clothing is strewn out before him. 
Palm branches, we know from other texts, are there. And Christ makes His way and He draws near the descent of the Mount of Olives, which is right now a graveyard, by the way. If you go there now, it's just a big graveyard. Um, this area that Christ would have gone through to get there. Uh, if you want to take that, that walk, which we did when we were there, you have to walk through a graveyard. Uh, everybody wants to be planted there so they can see it happen, I guess. Um, I'm going to watch it from the air myself. So um, uh, we have this great graveyard there. So he's heading down. He has full view now. They've cleared the olive groves. They're on the descent. He has full view of Jerusalem, unobstructed. And he pauses himself. And, and while they're all rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice, and, and I want you to notice why they were praising God with a loud voice as he's getting close to this point of full view of Jerusalem. It says, for the works... They had seen. They had seen some wondrous things done. I'm sure that there are some of those very people with Jesus today. I'm pretty sure Zacchaeus followed him. I'm pretty sure blind Bartimaeus followed him from Jericho to Jerusalem, and as well as a lot of other people that have been healed on the way to Jerusalem that prior few weeks as Christ has been making his way there. Uh, not just because they're following Jesus, but because we're coming into Passover and most of Israel is trying to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there's this huge number of people who have seen, have witnessed the powerful working of God in people's lives. They have seen the dead raised. Um, I'm pretty sure Lazarus was around during this event. I mean, that's his hometown. They have seen the blind receive their sight. They have seen the lame walk. They have seen... Uh, Food multiplied in their presence. They have seen all these things. And here they are gathered, many of them the very recipients of the power of God. And they are going to cry out to Him as King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And we look at this declaration. The declaration is true. The problem is, in their minds, it is still physical. They are only focused on the physicality of this. They want to see a king set up an earthly kingdom. Their expectation is that Jesus is going to ride in there and he's going to whip them Romans right out of Jerusalem and right out of the whole area of Israel. All he's got to do is speak a word, doesn't he? I mean, look at the power this man has. The demons have to obey him. They're running out. They're jumping into pigs and getting drowned. I mean, look at what can stop this man. If any of your people get injured in, a, in any kind of battle, all he's got to do is say the word and they're healed. Who can stop this man? In their minds, this is the perfect introduction, presentation of their earthly king to Jerusalem. And their declaration reveals that. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which is reflective of what we heard even the angels talk about. They talked about peace on earth, and the people are saying peace in heaven. Everything's good between us and God, and now it's just going to have an earthly reign now. They didn't have the order correct. You see... They thought that because Jesus was showing up, they were already right with God and there was peace in heaven. And that God had accepted them and now had sent this earthly king to establish an earthly empire. 
The angels had it right. Christ had to come to earth and do that work of dying so that man could get peace with God. Christ didn't come because men were at peace with God. He had to come because we were at odds with God. And he was going to bring peace. But they declare him properly king. But they neglected him, his role as prophet. They neglected his role as priest, as we are going to see here very shortly. Of course, even this declaration is going to get some people angry, right? We immediately find the enemies of Christ who have been there all along. This is nothing new. The Pharisees called in from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Silence them. This is rebellion. This is insurrection. This is rabble-rousing. Silence your disciples. What they're saying cannot be permitted. You're going to cause problems here in Jerusalem. If they're allowed to say that, they're associating your role, not only as king, but you're from the Lord. You are a particular king who comes in the name of the Lord. That you are the, the one that God has assigned to be king. Silence them. And of course, Jesus' statement is very famous. We're all pretty familiar with it. When he looks at them, and almost in, with a tone of ridicule in his voice, says, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. For indeed, all creation recognizes her king. His statement here is that if men won't recognize my kingship, creation itself will recognize my kingship. Paul in Romans describes that, that all creation groans for their redemption. For Jesus' coming and His second coming, when they'll be able to have sin removed from the weight of sin upon the earth. And Christ here says, you know what, if the highest of creation won't, the rest of creation will. The lowest part of creation is just the dirt. If the highest of God's created order, man, will not recognize him as king, God says, then we'll make the lowest of created order, which is just the dirt. Let them recognize me as king. Let them open their mouths. And so, while their statement uh, belies something of their uh, expectation of a physical kingdom, it is in truth that Jesus Christ is coming as king, that he is coming in the name of the Lord, and that he is the one who will bring peace and will bring glory. And we come to the precipice now, with all of this occurring around him, all of this shouting, all of this exclamation, and even already some antagonism. And uh, we think this, isn't, uh, this is kind of a mixed crowd, and it is. We get the idea, we have the picture that this is, this is a, a, a completely joyful event. And while it is a wondrous one where Christ is coming in, it is certainly um, a little chaotic. This is a mixed crowd. The overwhelming amount of crowd are excited and thrilled and rejoicing and shouting, but not with a real understanding of what Christ has come to do. Even 
his most intimate disciples. That he told point blank, I am coming to Jerusalem to be betrayed, killed, and rise again. Remember, they didn't want to listen to that. and they, I don't know what he's talking about. What's he saying? Um, even they didn't really understand why Jesus was coming. While on the external level, we look at their activity and we say it is proper activity to receive Christ in this way. We know that in their hearts and minds was far from where it should have been. And this precipitates Christ's weeping. It was not tears of joy, but of sorrow. But as he draws near, he sees the city and he begins to weep. This is not the actions of a triumphant entry. This is the actions of one who recognizes that while the words spoken are true, while he is the king and while the the powerful picture of him riding on the back of a colt that has never been ridden upon is 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 a picture for Jerusalem and is an image for them to look for, he recognizes that by and large they've told, in fact, maybe to a person, They really don't understand what's about to happen. What is this that is coming? And so he weeps because he knows their hearts. He knows their condition spiritually is not one of peace, but one of enmity with God. Regardless of their declaration, he knows It says, if you had known, even you, Jerusalem, if you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If only they knew what made peace. But they didn't. You see, they thought that what would bring peace would be the removal of the Roman rule over them by a powerful king and a powerful army and an establishment of an earthly kingdom, that that would make peace and I've got to share with you that I find many in the Christian community today still have that attitude. Well, if I could just get a house and a couple of cars and, and food and, and I can get a, a summer house up somewhere else and I can get a boat and a camper and I can have, uh, and then get retired when I'm 35 and uh, with a large enough bank account to last me, then I'll be at peace. I can go right off into the sunset and I can, uh, you know, just live my life and I'll have peace then. Well, you haven't been paying attention because a lot of people have acquired all of that and had no peace. And so because that all failed them, they turned to alcohol, they turned to, to drugs, they turned to uh, self-destructive things. Why? Because they didn't get what they were longing for because they were looking for it in this world. The disciples in Jerusalem was looking for something and they didn't know what. They wanted peace, but they didn't know how it came. They thought it came, we'll have peace when we get rid of the Romans out of our city. 
we'll have peace when we have a king that can meet all of our physical needs, that'll, that will supply all of our food, that, and we can just, uh, and we'll have no illness, no disease, no, nothing. And, and then we'll have peace. And Jesus Christ says, you have nothing. You don't know what even you're looking for. You don't know what makes for peace. The things that make for peace have come to you and you're blind to them. And you cannot miss the imagery here. In verse 37, they were shouting with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And Jesus Christ's statement about them is, you're blind. It says, now they are hidden from your eyes in the end of verse 42. They're here making this declaration because of the things they have seen. And by the way, that isn't faith. That is not a faith declaration. And Christ says the the crisis of Jerusalem is that they haven't seen the truth. Even though I've been saying it now for months. It is necessary that I die that you have peace to die for your sin, to cover your sin, that I be raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. This is what is necessary for peace. And you can't see it, even though I've said it point blank on several occasions, even though the whole Testament speaks of it, you can't see it. You're blind to it. And because of that, a prophecy comes forth. that we need to take warning from ourselves. Verse 43 says, because you, it doesn't start, but summarizing verse 42, you missed the day of your salvation. You missed the day when God walked in your streets. You missed the day of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords arrival. You made it physical. You missed who he really was fully And now, this is the cost. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. There are consequences of being the condition of Jerusalem. There are consequences of living your life thinking that this is all there is. And those consequences come yet in this life. This past week and a half, we have seen deaths of several well recognized sports figures. One because his wife killed him. Gold medalist in the marathon. One because of drugs. Hockey player. Mixing alcohol and oxycodone. And we look at that and say they had it all going for them. We were watching athletes falling left and right. And yet we still don't understand. As long as our live, we're living our lives thinking that this world 
we're going to achieve, what only can be given to us when we're in the presence of God, we will have that kind of misery and destruction. There's a price to pay when we think that this world is all there is. And the world is paying that price. Just as surely as Jerusalem paid the price for rejecting the one and only Messiah, so today there's a price to be paid when we reject the person and work of Jesus Christ as the only means of having a right relation with God and the peace that comes from forgiveness of sins. Jerusalem rejected him and would pay the price. And within a generation, that price would be paid and Jerusalem would be leveled. This prophetic utterance by Christ, here around 33 A.D., would be fulfilled between 66 and 70 A.D. at the fall of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was surrounded by the Romans and leveled, burned to the ground, not one stone upon another. There was such fierceness in the Romans over the rebellious nature of the, of the people of Jerusalem, the stubbornness that they just wreaked havoc upon it. And Jesus Christ identifies the reason. It wasn't because of the civil disobedience that happened in 66. It was because of what happened in and around the year 33. It brought forth the fruit of destruction. Because they did not know the time when Christ came. They did not receive him. They did not accept him as their Messiah. They're willing to declare him as their king in the line of David because of what they'd seen, and yet they would not allow themselves by faith to see what they should have seen, which is a spiritual truth. There's one more evidence of this yet again in this chapter. Not only did they miss him with their spiritual eyes, but they were missing him with their worship. He arrives at the Temple Mount. He has ascended the steps of Solomon, gone through Solomon's porch, and gone in. And there along Solomon's porch were the money changers. And by this time it had become well known that that was a place of corruption. You see, people would be coming from all over the Roman Empire, from all over the known world, Jews would come. And traveling, they were permitted to bring money to exchange to buy a sacrifice. And the people there had figured out a way to get them coming and going. So you couldn't buy any sacrificial animals on the Temple Mount in the currency of where you came from, whether it be Roman or Greek or whatever. You had to buy it in the shekel. So that required you to trade your money in for shekels. And interestingly, around this period of time, the Passover, the shekel became much more valuable. Imagine that. The bankers were manipulating currency even back then. Don't be surprised that it's going on now. Nothing new under the sun. So currency was being manipulated. Not only that, then with that 
devalued money that you got. You were then sent over to the place to buy that animal and you were overpriced for bad goods. Animals that weren't qualified to be sacrificed because they were of poor quality. They weren't the best uh, Israel had to offer. In fact, they were blind and they were maimed and they were, they were some of the worst and they were overpriced. And so they got you coming in the door, they got you over there and they got you a third time. And Christ says, this isn't happening in my day. And at least once, if not twice, Christ comes in and disrupts the entire environment and drives all those who bought and sold in it What were they buying? They were buying Roman money with empty shekels that could only be spent on the temple mount. What were they selling? Broken down animals to be sacrificed. Neither of which glorified God. Just lined their pockets. He drove them out. And the question comes, why, what authority are you doing these things? And who is he who gave you this authority? And once again, we discover that the people of Jerusalem have no idea who they're dealing with. They want to worship the way they've all, they're doing it. And yes, some people are getting rich, but you know, we're providing a service to these pilgrims that are coming from all over. And, and we all know what, what tourist traps are like, right? And so that's basically what it became, a tourist trap. These pilgrims come from all over the world and they're going to be built. By what authority do you have to interrupt this practice? We're worshiping the way we want to worship and, and how hard can it be if we get a little rich on the side while we're doing it? Sound familiar? Sounds like anything that happens in Christian churches today. We'll worship however you want us to worship as long as you come and put money in there. We'll conform our worship to your kind of living as long as we get our salary paid and fill the seats and pay off the mortgage. Make the mortgage payment. And if you don't think that's what's driving a lot of ministries, you haven't been around much. I would say a majority are driven. Pastors driven. Why do we buy up books on how to market our church? not because we're concerned about what this book says. We're concerned about the balance sheets. And we're willing to compromise true worship simply to meet the balance sheet. Meet the payroll. I love the testimony of our church. I love going down to Haiti and spending your money. And I love telling them, we don't... We don't have a finished building yet either. I love going down to a church of 100 from a church of 40 and saying, we'll build your place for you. When churches of hundreds will do nothing. I love that. It's the way real worship is. It's sacrificial. Not lining our pockets, but seeking Glorify God and others. And I pray that it isn't reflective just of our church, but of each individual in it, that we see that our worship needs to be Christ-centered and needs to be of sacrificial nature and that we do not conform our worship to the 
systems of the world thinking that that's the way that you pay bills. We don't take an offering here. And when people visit us, they say, you know, I don't, what do I do with this? And I'm like, well, I can do whatever you want with it. You can keep it. Well, I want to give. And I'm like, well, put it in the box. Why didn't you take an offering? In fact, we've had groups come here and say, well, I'm here to play the offertory. And I go, well, you can play for, you know, in our service, but we don't have one of those. When, I, when we started this church, I was told by multiple men, you cannot, you cannot make it that way. You can't do it. I love when people say that, that God can't do stuff. I serve a God that says, go get that colt, and no one's going to bother you if you just say, the Lord has need of him. Can we obey God to that degree? I believe we can. And when I see churches compromising the message, compromising what true worship is all about, all to get the people in, to get the mortgage payment made, um, then we wonder why they're destitute of truth and of passion. You're called to a worship that recognizes the authority of God. Not the world's marketing system. Not um, the bankers. Shame on us for going to the bankers. Um, not any of that. We worship God. His way. And know that He'll provide His way. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple, we might look at that and say, oh, we would never let that happen in our churches. But the fact is, in our churches, that's exactly what's happening. And when someone comes in and says, you're doing it contrary to God's word, we, say, we ask the same question, who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? Listen to Christ. It is written. He didn't come to say, I'm the Son of God. I wrote the manual on worship. I know how it's supposed to be done. Just listen to me. He didn't do that. He didn't come and say, I'm the guy you're worshiping. I'm allowed to clear the temple. It's my temple. This is my house. Didn't say that. He came in and said, let me quote to you some scripture. It is written. My house is a house of prayer, but you've made a den of thieves. And it's time that we walk in and start quoting scripture in our churches instead of having little plays and dramas and singing scripture, truth. And that is true worship. Jesus Christ spoke it when he, in the, speaking with the Samaritan woman. How do we worship? It's not about where. It's about do you worship in spirit and do you worship in truth? These people weren't worshiping in spirit or in truth. Because their minds have been set on this world. The entry of Christ wasn't a triumphant one. It was one of sorrow. It was one of anger. For the people who had seen great works were blind to who Jesus was and his work. His spiritual work. And here he walks in and the temple had turned from a spiritual act of worship to simply 
an economic boom. And brethren, this cannot be. Misery will come. And so we are called once again, are we truly disciples? Or are we like the crowd who one day will say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, and a few days later yell out, crucify him. Because we didn't get it our way. The disciples thought Christ was entering his king, was about ready to sack the Romans. To the point that even the night before, they're ready to go out with a sword against an enemy. And as long as we have our focus that this is all there is, we'll never have that peace. We'll never have that 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 God intends for us, a right relation with God. For when we have a right relation with God, our focus isn't on this world at all. Sacrifice here means very little to us. Suffering here means very little to us um, because we have our sights set on something else, something that can't be seen with our human eyes but can be seen with the eyes of faith. The world may ridicule it, but it remains the hope of those who know their Savior, who He is and what He came for. So we are called to receive Jesus as the one and only way of salvation. Not just with a shout of praise of saying, yes, he is the king, I believe in Jesus, but with a heart that by faith will trust in him fully, worship God through Jesus Christ. With our eyes set not on this world, but on one to come. Recognizing not just physical truth, but spiritual truth. And this is what it means to have a right relationship with God. It's not about praying a certain prayer a certain way. It's not about being in church on a certain day. It's not about how loud we sing. But rather, are we seeing Jesus with eyes of faith? He says, I believe, I trust. Only in Him. Let our worship reflect that. He is our God. See, they wanted Jesus as king, but they didn't want him as Lord. They didn't want him as, as Messiah. They didn't want him as Savior. They wanted something earthly when God had something eternal that he wanted to give them, and they missed it. And I fear there are many in churches today who are missing the eternal that God wants for them we're all wrapped up in the earthly. And I pray that that never becomes our focus. Let's pray.